Well, good morning. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingham Church, and it's my privilege to lead us in the study of God's Word this morning. So if you have a Bible or want to grab one out of the seat back in front of you, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 17. The nice thing is it's really easy to find today. It's on page 2, so that should be, uh, should be not too bad. And as you turn there, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as your people to worship you. And Father, I pray now that as we open your word and as we read it together, that the worship would continue as we see a little bit more of who you are and who you've created us to be. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd open our eyes, open our ears, and and just really draw us into what you have to say today. And I pray that we'd be changed because of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 2, verses 4 to 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. And the name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. But Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. So this is the garden of Eden. This is paradise. This is one of the most iconic locations in all of human history. And I imagine that for most people in the world, even if they've never read the book of Genesis or, or read the Bible, if you said the words Garden of Eden, it would, it would mean something to them. They would, they would recognize that phrase. They would recognize the name because it's become such an a iconic location, the Garden of Eden. It represents what we think of when we think of paradise. And so we read this description, but... My guess is for most of us, if I was to ask you to describe paradise, you might come up with something a little bit different. For most of us, if you were describing paradise, you probably wouldn't describe a garden full of fruit trees and and a river of water flowing through it all. Maybe you would. Uh, But let's try something right now just to see. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And when I say the words paradise, I want you to think about what image comes to mind for you. It'll be different for everybody. For some of you right now, you're picturing yourself in a lawn chair, either by a pool or by, a, by an ocean beach. You got the hot sun bathing down on you. You have a cold drink in your hand, maybe a book that you're reading or some earphones listening to music. Uh, for others, if I say paradise, you're thinking of a snowy mountain. And you've got your skis on your feet and there's fresh powder. And this is the kind of mountain that you can just keep going down and down and down. You never have to, to stop at the bottom. 
Uh, for some of you, you might be inside. It might be a spa and all the modern, latest conveniences and amenities. For some of you, that when, you, when I say paradise, that's what comes to mind. Uh, for myself, it's a little bit different than all those things. For myself, when I think of paradise, I think of a cabin in the, in the woods with you know, lakes and mountains all around. I think of temperature being not too hot, not too cold. A nice warm cup of coffee in my hands and a book to read, a campfire going. Uh, that's what I think of when I think of paradise. And imagine for, for most of us, not many of us would picture paradise as what we just read in Genesis chapter 2. But I want us to remember and, and think about the first people that would have read the book of Genesis. You see, when Moses wrote the book of Genesis and when God inspired Moses to write this down, this was at a period in human history when the basic things like water and food would have been difficult to come by for many people especially for nomadic people groups. Those are people groups that would wander from place to place through the wilderness in, in, in the ancient world. And they'd be wandering from place to place trying to find food, trying to find shelter, trying to find water and sources of water to drink. And you can imagine Moses reading Genesis chapter 2 to the nation of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, always complaining about not having enough food, always complaining about not enough water, always complaining about all these things that plagued them. And I imagine if Moses told the people of Israel in the wilderness to close their eyes and to picture paradise, I imagine for many of them, this would be what they would imagine. Right? A, a flowing stream that you don't ever have to worry about where water's coming from because you can always drink of this stream and have your thirst satisfied. You have all these fruit trees with, with, they're not only good to look at, but you can eat of the fruit and you never have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. There's no drought. It, it's always lush and it's always this great vegetation. And they say, well, we would probably work, but the work would be the kind of work that there's no futility in the work. There's no frustration. There's no wasted time. It's work that has purpose, that has meaning, that brings you a sense of fulfillment. I think if Moses read Genesis chapter 2 to the nation of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness, they would say, yes, this is what paradise looks like. It doesn't get much better than this. But I think if they reflected on, on paradise a little bit, if they reflected on the Garden of Eden, they might come up with one question, actually. They might look at all this stuff and say, Moses, this sounds amazing. The, sound, the rivers and the trees and the gold and the precious stone, it all sounds amazing. But we have just one question. Moses, if this is paradise, where is the tabernacle? Now, that probably sounds like a bit of a silly question to ask because we don't think in this way, but we have to remember how important the tabernacle was for God's people. You see, the tabernacle was the tent that Israel carried with them through their wilderness journeys, and this was the place where God's presence dwelt with his people. This was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God's presence actually dwelt with his people as they journeyed through the wilderness. And if you read the book of Exodus, once you, the people get out of Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai, a good portion of the latter half of the book of Exodus is dedicated to the tabernacle. We get all kinds of details about the materials of the tabernacle. We get all kinds of details about the construction of the tabernacle. We get all kinds of details about how everything came together, who did what, what pieces were put in place, and that the climactic moment at the end of the book of Exodus, we learn that God's presence comes and dwells within the tabernacle. This was a high point of the book of Exodus. A little bit later on in Israel's history, the temple takes on this function. And once again, in the book of Kings, we have Solomon building the temple. And it talks about 
all the materials that needed to be collected, all the plans that needed to be followed. And again, this high point in the book of Kings is when God's presence comes and dwells in the temple among his people. One of the most devastating things for God's people happened years later when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground because the temple was God's presence among his people. In fact, when God's people thought about what it meant to be his people, the greatest gift that they were given wasn't anything material that God promised to them. It was God's very presence among them. This was supposed to be something that the other nations looked at and they took notice of. This was supposed to be a light to the nations that God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle in such a profound way. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, Moses is talking about this and he asks the people a question. He says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Moses is saying one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us is that he dwells in our midst among us. This sets us apart from the other nations. Having this tabernacle is such an amazing, amazing gift. And and so I think the truth is you can have all these amazing things that we describe in Genesis 2, but the question is, if God's presence isn't there, can it really be paradise? See, God's people were forced to to really wrestle with this truth in a number of different times. One of these times actually came at a surprising place in Israel's story in the incident of the golden calf. And I want to tell you about this story because it really helps us to see this principle embraced by God's people after completely missing the point. So in, in the book of Exodus, God enters into a covenant relationship with his people. This is at Mount Sinai we got, where God brings the Ten Commandments and he gives them to Moses. And God at this moment says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will enter into a relationship with you. And he asks the people of Israel, do you want to enter into this relationship? And the people say, absolutely, yes, you will be our God. We will be your people. And God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments are not just arbitrary, arbitrary rules. These are the commandments that will govern the new relationship between God and his people. Uh, you probably know the Ten Commandments pretty well, or you can list them off. The first commandment we'll look at right now is the command, you shall have no other gods before me. And a- along with that, you shall not make an idol and bow down and worship it. And God says to his people, do you want to be in a relationship with me? Do you accept these Ten Commandments, these, these rules that will govern the relationship? And God's people say, absolutely, we will. They say, whatever God has commanded, we will do. We will follow God. He will be our God. We will be his people. We will follow the Ten Commandments. We'll obey God. And it's this happy occasion as God's people enter into a covenant with their their Lord. And so Moses goes back up the mountain because now he's going to receive instructions from God about how the tabernacle is going going to be made. In other words, now that God's people are in a relationship with God, they've got to figure out how is God's presence going to go with them. And it's in this moment, as Moses goes up the mountain, that something terrible happens. The people look around after a few days, and they ask themselves the question. They say, well, Moses has been gone for a long time. You know, do you think it would be wrong if we maybe had a little worship service while Moses is is up on the mountain? And they think it's kind of hard to worship when there's nothing really in front of you to bow down before. So why don't we get all our gold together? We'll melt it, and we'll make it into a golden calf and and have this statue. And this will be the—we'll worship this golden calf— Because Moses has gone on the mountain, we need something to do. And so the people bring their gold together. Aaron helps them to shape it into a golden calf. And they start worshiping before these golden calves. 
And Aaron, who's Moses' brother, is supposed to be a leader of the people. He says this. He says, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And they start to have a feast and they have a festival and they worship this golden calf. And then Moses comes down the mountain. And he sees all this happening. And this is this iconic moment where Moses takes the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and he throws them to the ground and he shatters them to pieces. Because you see, it wasn't just that a rule had been broken, a relationship had been broken. No sooner has God entered into this covenant with his people than the people turn their backs on the very thing they said they wouldn't do. And so the question becomes, what's God going to do in light of such betrayal? How is God going to respond to the treachery? And there's a number of things that transpire, but I want to focus on one thing in particular that God says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 1 to 3. And listen to the option that God gives to Moses and the people. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. See, Moses and the people of God, they have a choice to make in this moment. God is essentially, he's offering them paradise, but without the presence of God. He's saying, you can actually go up to the promised land. This is the land that Abraham was promised, Isaac, Jacob, their descendants were promised that they would have this land that God would give to them and he would drive out the inhabitants of the nations that were there and he would give them this land flowing of milk and honey. It was supposed to be this land that was this incredible blessing, flowing with milk and honey. It's another way of talking about food without toil, God's provision for his people. And so God says to Moses and the people, he says, you can go to the promised land. I'm not going to take that away from you. But if you're going to go there, you go by yourselves. I'm not coming with you. My presence won't go with you. And so God's people have a choice to make. And I think given what's just happened in the story, given the fact that they've just worshipped these golden calves, they've just turned their backs on God, you kind of expect them to say, well, that sounds pretty good. I think we'll take option number A. I think we'll go up to the promised land without God. But even the people who have just turned their backs on God, even they realize what's at stake here. They have a moment of clarity where they, where they said, it says this, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Later, Moses says this. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. See, what the people realized in that moment, what Moses realizes in this moment is it's actually better to be in the desert with God than to be in the promised land without him. And Moses says, if you don't go with us, we're not going to the promised land. See, Moses has such a deep longing for an appreciation of God's presence that nothing this world has to offer will actually stand in the way of that. And, and I think at this point, it's important for us to ask the question, how would we respond in, in that situation? I think we all know what we'd like to respond or how we'd like to respond. I think we all know what the right answer is, but how would we respond if God said, you can have everything you wanted, but my presence won't go with you? If God said, you can have the career you've always wanted, you could have the salary, the benefits, you could have the pension, you could have the relationship, you can have the marriage you've always wanted, you can have the kids you've always wanted, you can have whatever your heart desires, you can have it, but I won't go with you. 
I think we know what we should say in that moment, but where would our hearts be wrestling? Or think back to your picture of paradise, whatever that looks like for you. God says you can have paradise. You can have it every day for the rest of your life, but I won't go with you. How do we respond in those moments? I think it's great we just sang these lyrics together as a church. We sang, I'd rather have Jesus than anything the world, uh, anything the world affords today. And, and I saw as we sang them, we, we meant those lyrics. But that's always the real test, isn't it? To be able to sing those, those words out and to really mean them, but to recognize so often in our lives we can chase those things that are, that are lesser, less important. And we can take God's presence for granted in, in so many ways. I see this sometimes in the way we talk about heaven. And, and I don't know if you've noticed this before, but often when we talk about heaven, we say things like, you know, it's going to be great because we'll be feasting and celebrating. We'll sing lots of songs together. We'll see loved ones. We'll be reunited with old friends and it will just be this great celebration. And we speculate about, you know, maybe we'll have jobs there and maybe we'll play sports and maybe we'll be able to fly. And we have all these things. Then it's almost like we've, tack on at the end and oh yeah of course God God will be there too Uh, God's presence will be there of course you know it goes without saying but is that what we're actually longing for more than any of those other things that are also going to be good And, and hear me right now the point of this is not to bring condemnation or make you feel bad about not appreciating God's presence like you should the point of this is to invite us into something Hear this as an invitation to recognize how great the presence of God is among us. To develop a hunger for God's presence so that actually nothing else this world has to offer satisfies anymore. And we only desire him. And so this kind of leads us back to Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden. And the question remains, if the Garden of Eden is paradise, why is there no tabernacle? Or why is there no temple? Why is there no physical sanctuary for God's presence to dwell among his people? And the answer to this question is actually what makes Eden, Eden. The reason none of these things are there is because God's presence fills the entire Garden of Eden with his people. It's not just the dwelling place of humanity. It's actually the dwelling place of God as well. And your outline says it like this. The best part of Eden is that God is there. And I think when you look at the description of the Garden of Eden through the eyes of the original readers, this would also start to become clear because I think at first they would read this description, they'd wonder, where's the tabernacle? Where is God's presence supposed to dwell? But I also think as they gave it some more thought, as they thought about the trees and the rivers and the gold and the precious stone, they would start to realize, actually it looks like the whole garden is God's tabernacle. It's God's dwelling place with his people. The reason for this is actually because the physical description of the Garden of Eden communicates profound truth. And I'll tell you what I mean because we don't think of of things in this way usually, but I'll give you an example. My best friend, he's an architect. And as an architect, he sees things differently than most people see when it comes to buildings. All right, this is something we see in, in different areas where whatever kind of your field of expertise is, usually you're going to look at the world through that lens and things will, you'll notice things that other people don't notice. Right? So if you work with coding a lot in computers, you'll probably notice things about computers that most people won't notice. If you work in the film industry, you'll notice things about movies or TV shows that other people don't notice. For my friend, he notices things about buildings that other people don't notice. And so we're walking through downtown Vancouver a number of years ago 
And he's pointing out buildings and he's saying, hey, look at that building. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, it's a nice, you know, tall building. Uh, but he, he looks at the building and he says, no, don't you understand what the architect is trying to say in the choices that he's made? I'm thinking, no, I actually don't see that. But he talks about, you know, the composition and the form and the function and look at the material and and look at how he's making a statement by the way he designs this element. And it just goes completely over my head because for most people, I think these days, we don't think about buildings in that way. Uh, Probably the last kind of great example of buildings that we think about in a way of communicating would be the great cathedrals of the church. Right? These buildings where you walk into them and the whole design, the whole way the cathedrals are built are meant to communicate something about God and his grandeur and, and all these different things. Uh, we, we're not used to buildings communicating uh, in the way that, that mo- some people are. But when you go back to the Old Testament and when you look at things like the tabernacle and the temple, those were buildings that were meant to communicate. And they communicated profound truths just in the way that they were designed. They said things like, God is holy. God is exalted over all. God is glorious. God is majestic. And they communicated those truths actually by the materials that were used and the way that they were built. So for example, when you got to the holy place, the most holy place where God's presence dwelled, where the Ark of the Covenant was, you recognize that everything was made of pure gold, which was the most precious metal at the time. Everything made out of pure gold where God's presence was whether it was the Ark of the Covenant, whether it was the Holy of Holies, the closer you got to God's presence, the more precious the building materials became because God is holy. God is glorious. God is majestic. This is what befits him. The tabernacle and the temple, they also communicated the holiness of God, the fact that God cannot dwell among sinful humanity. And so you had these different areas within the temple, the most holy place where God's presence dwelt. You had the holy place after that. You had the outer courtyard. And these different areas, the the closer you got to God's presence, the more sacred the space became. So you couldn't just wander into God's presence because God is a holy God that can't dwell among sinful people. And so the tabernacle is God's way of dwelling amongst his people, even though they are sinful. We have to be shielded from the fullness of his presence because he is a holy God. And the tabernacle, the temple, they communicated these truths through the actual way that they were built. And of course, the physical construction, the physical materials of the tabernacle and the temple, they would have been well known to God's people. They know about the gold and the pure gold that's in in the presence of God. They would know about the precious, the precious jewels and the precious stones. They would know about the candlestick shaped like a, like a tree. They would know about the basin of water outside in the courtyard. And so they would look at the description of the Garden of Eden. They start to recognize, oh, it talks about gold. It talks about precious stones. It talks about trees. It talks about rivers. This must be God's very presence. And they start to realize, wait a second, in the tabernacle and in the temple, there's these dividing walls that keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's presence. Why aren't there any dividing walls in the Garden of Eden? And the answer is because we can experience the fullness of God's presence. Because this is happening, the Garden of Eden, before humanity falls into sin and that sin separates them from God. And the beautiful thing about that is it shows us what humanity is actually created for. It shows us what our potential is before sin comes in the world and brings a separation. That humanity is designed to be in God's presence. And so the reason that there's no tabernacle, the reason there's no temple and the Garden of Eden is because the reality that those things pointed to is actually there 
in the garden. It's amazing. We actually see the same thing in the book of Revelation at the end of when, when we're describing the final dwelling place for God and his people, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And it talks about the, new, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And the author of Revelation in chapter 21, verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. He's saying you don't need a temple in the new city because God himself is there and he dwells with his people. And it's amazing when you look at the description of the new, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, once again, the physical makeup of that city communicates profoundly. It's coming down out of heaven and it's described as a, uh, as being 12,000 stadia long, wide, and high. It's this 12,000 stadia cube of pure gold. To kind of convert that into, uh, into miles, it's 1,400 miles cubed. And, and so if you looked at a map of the known world at the time Revelation was written, if, if you looked at a map of the entire world that was known to them, uh, this, this cube would fill the entire world at the time. And so you think to yourselves, okay, what in the biblical pool of images is a cube that's made out of pure gold? And the answer is the most holy place where God's presence dwells. And so now you see the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And what you're, what you're learning is that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will all dwell in God's presence. The whole of the new creation will be like the most holy place where God's presence dwells with his people. And then when you get to chapter 22 in Revelation, you start to see all this language that's from the book of Genesis. So listen to this description, verses 1 through 5 of Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this is what makes Eden, Eden. It's not the trees, it's not the river, it's not the gold, it's not the precious stone. It's what those point to, the very presence of God with his people. And so when you read Genesis chapter 2, 4 to 17, you see that this is an incredible gift that God has given to his people. Even more so when you consider humanity's origins. And we read in Genesis 2 that humans are created from the dust of the earth. And God breathed into them the breath of life. And as you look at humanity described as dust from the earth, this is something that the New Testament and the Old Testament writers, they pick up on. And every time they mention us being created from dust, it's always a reminder of a couple of things. First of all, our human frailty and our human weakness have left to our own devices. It always talks about we are dust. In other words, in and of ourselves, there's not, there's not much strength. There's not much significance. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. But usually there's also this other realization that humans who are created from dust of the earth are also breathed in with the breath of God. And he gives us the breath of life, and so we have significance. We have purpose. We have a place in this world that is gifted to us by God. Uh, the psalmist wrestles with this. Carter read this earlier, Psalm 8, verse 4 to 5. What is man that you are mindful of him? 
and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Another Psalm puts it this way in Psalm 103, 13 to 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so we see our significance, our position within the creation, our identity, all that comes as a gift from God. It's an incredible reality that we see in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, but what about the command that God gives to his people? What about the command, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die? Uh, we'll talk about what that command means and what's all implied in that in the weeks to come. But for now, the command itself, is the command a gift from God, or is that now a burden that God's people must bear if they're going to live in the garden? I think sometimes we have this funny idea that if God really loved us, he would just let us do whatever we wanted. And if God really loved us, if he really cared about us, he would just let us do what we wanted. He wouldn't give us rules. He wouldn't be so restrictive. But let me ask you a question. What good parents do you know that they have young kids and they say to their kids, well, because we love you so much, we're just going to let you do whatever you want and we're not going to give you any instruction. Right? Because we love you so much, we're not going to tell you right from wrong. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're just going to let you go for it and we're just going to watch and see what happens. Right? Not, not many, I think, good parenting strategies would, would take you that way because if you love a child, you're going to set them up for success. You're going to tell them the difference between right and wrong. You're going to show them the, the proper way to live. And not only that, you're not going to wait until the child messes up and then you're going to say, aha, you, know, you didn't know you weren't supposed to do that, but it's against the rules and now we're going to get you. No, you, you desire clarity. You want to help your kids know what right and wrong is so that they know the best way to live their lives. And I think this is what we see in the Garden of Eden, God setting up his children for flourishing. There's an interesting uh, contrast to this in a document that archaeologists found a number of years ago. And it's a prayer that a man in the ancient world makes, and he makes it to, well, he doesn't really know who he's talking to. It's this really devastating example of a person in the ancient world who's trying to pray to God, but they don't know who God is. And they're trying to confess their sins, but they actually don't know what they've done wrong because no one's ever told them what right and wrong are. And they're trying to figure out what they can do to be made right with the gods, but they don't, again, they don't know who God is, they don't know what they've done wrong, and they don't know what they should do in light of this. And it's just this devastating prayer where this person is just crying out, but is so desperate to figure out what he's done wrong, who God is, and what he can do about it. And there's no answers coming to him. He says things like this, Oh God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. Oh goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. I do not know what wrong I have done. And you have this picture of, this devastating picture of a man who's left to figure it out all on his own. He doesn't know who God is. He doesn't know what God requires. He just knows he's done something wrong. The gods are angry and he's got to figure a way to, to make the gods happy again. Now contrast to the book of Genesis where God tells his people, you don't have to guess at who I am. I'm going to tell you. You don't have to guess what my will is. I'm actually going to reveal that to you. You see, in that context, we see that God giving this command, it's actually a gracious gift for his people. In the same way later as, as God's people received the law at Mount Sinai, once again, this is a gracious gift for God's people. 
So much so that Moses, again, said, this is going to be another one of those things that other nations will look at and they'll, they'll see that there's something different about the nation of Israel and they'll look at the nation of Israel and this will be a light to the nations, the fact that the nation has such a great law. It's kind of different than we might expect or we might think about, but back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, listen to how Moses continues from what we read earlier. Earlier we read, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? But listen to what Moses says next in verse 8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? In other words, the nations will look at Israel and say, how amazing that your God has revealed all these laws to you, that he's revealed his will to you. And in the Garden of Eden, we have humanity dwelling in the presence of God, guided by God's good commands, which are for their benefit, in this well-watered oasis in a deserty place. Everything that they have is such an incredible gift from God. And what this shows us is that humanity all of us are created for an eternal relationship with the God who created us, with the God who loves us. Your outline says it like this. Humans are designed for God's presence. And the thing I love about the book of Genesis is it's not just a book about God and Christians or God and the nation of Israel. Genesis is making claims about God and all of creation. So according to Genesis, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an atheist or from a different religion Genesis says you are designed and created for a relationship with the creator. It doesn't matter if you acknowledge that or not. It doesn't matter if you live as if that's not true. That's what you're designed for. That's what you're made for. And you'll have a restlessness until you actually find the truth of what that means. And so we're created for a relationship with God. But of course, there's a few problems, aren't there? The first problem is that, as, we, as we'll talk about in the weeks to come, Humanity fell into sin, and sin separates us from God's presence because God is a holy God. And so you have this problem now that you see, in the one hand, Genesis and the way things were meant to be. You see Revelation 22 and the way that things will be in the future. But it leaves you with the question, how can we enter into God's presence if sin is now a part of the human heart? If sin is now such a part of the human condition, how can we enter into God's presence? So that's the one problem. We're unable to enter into God's presence because of our sin. But the second problem is this. For a lot of us, for a lot of the world, you've lived so long without reference to God. You've lived so much thinking that this is all that there is. There is no God. We're not, that it's almost difficult for us to imagine what life with God would be like. And so for a lot of people, there's, there's not only this lack of ability to enter into God's presence, But there's a lack of desire as well because we actually don't know how amazing it would be. And the amazing thing we see in the Bible is there's good news for both of those problems, actually. God actually desires to dwell with his people. He makes a way for it to be possible. And then he actually invites and he beckons and he draws us into his very presence. In the Old Testament, we already talked about God dwells with his people in the tabernacle. He dwells with his people in the temple. But then when the fullness of time came, God dwelled with his people in and through Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we saw the full glory and goodness of God through Jesus Christ when he was here. And what Jesus did is he went to the cross and he died on the cross for sins so that we might have our sins forgiven and that we might be made righteous so that we could once again dwell in God's presence. 
And Jesus told his followers before he ascended, he told them, it's actually better for you that I go because if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you and he will dwell among you. And Jesus ascended into heaven. He poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. And and, and what happens with this, we read about in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, where it says, for we are the temple of the living God. So what does this mean? It means that the church is once again the place where the the realities that the tabernacle and the temple pointed to is actually here. God's dwelling among his people through the Holy Spirit. And and this is why, as a church, we could actually survive if if we didn't have a building because it's not about the building anymore. It's about God dwelling in us through his Holy Spirit. Your outline says it like this. This is something we can experience now in part in anticipation of the day when we experience it in full. See, the beauty of this is we don't have to wait till we die and go to heaven to be with God. We don't have to wait till Revelation 22 before we can experience God's presence. We can experience God's presence right here, right now, through the Holy Spirit. Many of us experience God's presence this morning as we sang songs of worship to him. And so, as you're sitting here today, I want you to consider a couple of things. For some of you, maybe this is all new and you're you're hearing for the first time that you've been created for a relationship with God and his very presence and you're just wondering if this could actually be true for yourself. Could this actually be something that you could partake in? And I want to tell you something. If you're here today listening to these words, it just shows me that God is at work in your life drawing you to himself. And if you feel him calling you towards you, I just want you to say yes to God today. To say, Jesus, I trust that you've made a way for me into God's presence and I want to follow you and I want to have a relationship with you. And for those of us here today who already know all these things, who've experienced the goodness of God's presence, I want to invite you back to recognize just how amazing it is. Because I imagine if you're anything like me, it's so easy for other things, lesser things, to kind of creep up into our lives and just take the place of God's presence where we just look at our weeks and look at our months and look at our years of our lives and say, I just haven't, I just haven't made this a priority the way that I should. And so right now, even, even where you're sitting, just picture a time in your life, a time when you've experienced God's presence in a profound way. And maybe it's at a worship service, maybe it's reading your Bible, maybe it's in a time of solitude in nature, maybe it's in a time of, of you know, prayer with friends, whatever it is, just think about those times when you've experienced God's rich presence through the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to pursue those things this week. I want to invite you to pursue those things even this day. To recognize that we can have all the things that the world has to offer. But if God doesn't go with us, if we don't have God's presence, it's actually not worth it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence in and through your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for making a way for us to dwell with you. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. And we look forward to the day when we can experience the fullness of your presence forevermore. When we can see you face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. And until that day, Father... I pray that you just awaken us a hunger for your presence, a hunger to know you. I pray that the things of this world, as good as they can be sometimes, Father, I pray that they wouldn't satisfy us. We'd only find satisfaction in you. And Father, that we would recognize that it's better to be with you in the desert than without you in the promised land.
We ask that you teach us this in Jesus' name. Amen.